0: If someone were to ask you to define the kingdom, the kingdom of God, what would you say? How would you define it? What is the kingdom of God? That's the question. What is it? Where is it? And when is it? And you understand that's a really important and practical question for us to get to the bottom of. We must get to the bottom of that question. We have to settle that question for the good of our own souls and for the good of our own church. We must know what is the kingdom of God. No, obviously, I get it. God is sovereign. He rules over all things, so in a sense, even the entire cosmos is his kingdom. I get that. I'm with you. And yet, and yet, the Bible is more precise than that. The Bible is more specific than that. You see, the Bible makes clear that there is a very clear stage in the sovereign plan of God known and identified as the kingdom. The question is, what is the kingdom? Is it merely a synonym of heaven? Is the kingdom right now here today in the church? Or is it, Still to come in the future. Does the kingdom exist in our hearts merely in a spiritual sense, or will the kingdom exist in the future in a physical sense? Is the kingdom a disembodied existence of, or this, this existence of disembodied souls floating around in some metaverse out there somewhere? Or, or is the kingdom where resurrected people live on the earth in a renewed creation? In the kingdom, will it be a nameless faceless mass of humanity standing around in togas and a harp or will there be nations on this very planet being ruled by a king who reigns from jerusalem do you hear the nature of the questions that i'm asking this morning and the reason why i ask these questions is because because for centuries the church as a whole has been tainted by a foreign influence that does not come from the Bible, influence outside the Bible that has hindered the church's ability to understand the kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong. We, as believers, we rightly believe in heaven and the spiritual realm. That's real and that's true. That is a real place. But many have failed to recognize that the age to come is the literal, physical, tangible kingdom of Jesus Christ on this very planet i mean many people have no idea that so much of what they believe about the life to come comes not from the theology of the prophets but from the philosophy of plato i'm serious it's called platonic dualism Platonic dualism, it's this ancient Greek idea that taught that physical is bad and spiritual is good. And in the Middle Ages, many theologians, they, they took that idea and they used it to reinterpret kingdom passages. And as a result, it made them biased to the beautiful, tangible glory of a kingdom in which paradise will be regained. And the result of that, and you have heard this, but the result of that is that many Christians are led to believe that eternity Is a never ending church service. An eternal sing along in the sky. This celestial state of quiet contemplation. And the problem is, the problem is, that neither offers hope, nor is it biblical, nor is it what Isaiah reveals in the text, because what Isaiah reveals in the text is a kingdom. As literal as as eden but better than eden it is on the earth in the future with paradise regained israel restored the nations redeemed israel and judah reunited once again as one and the davidic king reigning upon the earth that is the kingdom and all of that is exactly what's portrayed in isaiah chapter 11 and that's a really big deal you understand Because that means that everything that this chapter portrays is the remedy to everything that's wrong with the world. Do you see that? And what's wrong with the world cannot be fixed by politics or reform or education, but by a king. A divine king of sovereign power whose very presence on the earth makes it again like the Garden of Eden. That's the very news that the people of Judah needed to hear. That is the very news that we need to hear. Because at this very moment in Judah, armies were closing in. The king of Judah was a coward and a fool. The word of God was just a relic in the temple. Altars and idols cluttered the land. Drunkenness was rampant and they were even in the middle of a sexual revolution in Judah that was so nasty that several times God called them Sodom and Gomorrah. And to top it all off, judgment and exile was coming. The prophets were clear one day they would be invaded, they would be conquered, they would be driven from the land and scattered all over the face of the planet where they are even at this very day, which means, get this now, every single promise God had made to the people of Israel was hanging in the balance. This didn't look good. And unless God did something radical and supernatural both in them and for them, God would be proven a liar too weak to save his people from their sins. And the whole point of Isaiah 11, you understand, is to prove that none of that was true. God is strong and mighty to save, the plan of God is still intact, the covenants of God are irrevocable and guaranteed and what awaited the people of God was not some celestial utopia or some quiet, static state of secret contemplation, but instead what was coming was a kingdom. A kingdom. And a riveting glimpse of that kingdom is exactly what Isaiah gives us, so here we go. Here we go this morning. I want you to see from our text four riveting glimpses of Messiah's kingdom. Four riveting glimpses of Messiah's kingdom designed to sustain our souls in a world of chaos and despair. That's where we're going. Four riveting glimpses of Messiah's kingdom designed to sustain us in a world of chaos and despair. And the first one we saw last week, but it was this. Number one, the conquering king of the Kingdom the conquering king of the kingdom. And we saw this last week, but we saw that the coming kingdom in the future is not some godless utopia or some superficial socialist dream world, but it will be exactly as it sounds, namely a realm and a dominion ruled by a king. And we see that king in verse 1. Look what Isaiah says. He calls the Messiah to come, a stem from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots. You remember, Jesse is, of course, the father of King David. And David is a really, really big deal because 300 years before this moment, God made a promise to David, the son of Jesse, that one of his descendants would be a king. A king who would come and reign forever. An eternal king who would arrive and make things right in the world. And in chapter 7, you remember, we saw this king as a child, didn't we? a virgin-born redeemer from the line of David, and even his name would prove that he is God. Chapter 9, we see the king again, again as a child, and he has not one but four names, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, and he would reign on the throne of David forever. And then here in chapter 11, he appears this time all grown up and ready to receive his kingdom. And you notice Isaiah calls him a branch and a stem. A branch and a stem. And I'll have you know, Isaiah didn't make that up. That's not original with him. No, that branch language, get this, actually comes from 2 Samuel 23, which, believe it or not, is a prophecy about the future family line and reign of David. And here, right here in Isaiah 11, is an echo of that prediction and promise. And you understand, okay, well, why would the Messiah be called a branch? Why would he be called a stem? What is significant about that? That is the perfect title to give the Messiah. Do you know why? Because it pictures growth and renewal and restoration. Picture, if you will, a scorched and blackened earth with a little green shoot springing up out of the ground, becoming a great tree and bringing restoration and paradise back to earth. That's exactly what this is. That's exactly what Isaiah says. And look at verses 2, and two through 5. To, describes the character and reign of this Davidic king. Verse 2. Isaiah says, The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. In other words, when the Messiah comes, he will not rule his kingdom with mere human potential, but with the limitless capacity of God, the Spirit himself. Verse 3, this Spirit-empowered king, this is all review. Verse 3, the spirit-empowered king will do what kings are supposed to do. He will judge and he will decide. He will say yes and he will say no. He will make laws and policies and plans and changes, global changes that will be felt at every strata of society. And you notice that he will judge and he will decide, but he will not do those things like we do, but rather he will do it with infinite perfect knowledge of everything forever. And he will do that because he is God. He is divine. Verse 4. Poverty and affliction. Deprivation and misery. Sorrow and pain and suffering and famine and anguish. And all the effects of the fall that mankind has never been able to solve. Will be solved when the great king comes to reign. And he will not negotiate with terrorists. End of verse 4. When he appears, and he will appear, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. The king will arrive armed and ready for battle, ready for war. And when the war that he wages will be against the entire world and the wicked who are in it. And you notice, of course, that the weapons that he wield are not those held in the hands, but they are those which come out of his mouth, which means even his, even his words will have death-dealing power. All he'll need to do is speak when he arrives, and he will slaughter the forces of evil upon the earth. It will be a holocaust against evil. It will be war. Psalm 2.9 says that when he comes, he will rule the nations with an iron rod. He will shatter them like earthenware. Psalm 110 says the Messiah will slaughter kings in the day of his wrath. Zechariah 14 says that he will go to war against all the nations. And he alone will reign as king. But you understand this is no bloodthirsty tyrant. Or some maniac on a war path, because verse 5 says that righteousness will be the belt around his waist and faithfulness will be the belt around his loins, which means every word, every decision, every law from the king will flow from the infinite springs of his divine character. Here now is a king who is worthy of worship. Here now is a king who is worthy of our allegiance. Here now is a king who can and must be trusted. And get this, he will be worshiped and trusted by all the world when he comes. And just knowing that that's the finish line of history sustains our souls, does it not? In the midst of a world of chaos and fear. And you know it, you know it, don't you? By a simple process of elimination and by a simple read of the New Testament, you know that this spirit-empowered, justice-serving, afflicted, saving warrior king from the line of David is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Paul quoted this text in Romans 15 and applied it to Christ. Over and over again, Christ called himself the son of David Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, Christ even declared, I am the root and the offspring of David. This is Christ, 700 years before he showed up. Here he is, eternal God, virgin born, sinless life, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection, glorious ascension, sovereign Lord, and here coming King and final judge. This is reality. And he is literally the answer to everything, personally, globally, and eternally. And so you step back for a moment and you look at this text, you look at what we're seeing, what you are seeing in the text, this, this glorious prediction of who Christ is, this is what we mean when we talk about the glory of Christ. Do you know that? This is just one example of what we mean when we talk about the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ. The question is, what is the connection between this and our lives today? Well, think about it. It's very practical. Did you know that the sacred secret of our personal holiness and sanctification is to see and savor the glory of Christ? It's true. What I mean is the Father's will, His ultimate Aim for your life. If you want to know what is it that God wants for me, his, what he wants for you, his will for your life is that you would be conformed to the image of his son. Romans eight twenty nine says that that's his will for you. That's what he wants for you. The question is, the question is, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? It means that we would be less like us and more like Christ. How does this happen? And Paul could not be more clear. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he tells us that to be like Christ, we must be captivated by Christ. You see, we will only be as Christian as our view of Christ is profound. We will only be as holy as our vision of Christ is beautiful. Beautiful. And so what we must do every single day is commit ourselves to ransack the word of God in long, long meditation upon who Jesus Christ is, starting with this, starting with this text right here in Isaiah chapter 11, because the more glory you see of who Christ is, the more your lives will begin to resemble him. Which now brings us to the second riveting glimpse of Messiah's kingdom number two, the conditions of the kingdom the conditions of the kingdom. And speaking of the beauty and glory of Christ, one of the things that makes him so much that way is that he is not half a Savior who will only fix some things, but that he is a whole Savior who will fix everything. In other words, Jesus Christ is not merely a savior who only redeems our souls, but that he will be a savior, get this now, who will even redeem creation itself. And yet I just want you to know that what you're about to see, you are going to be tempted not to believe. You can be tempted not to believe what you're about to read and witness. What you're about to see is one of those passages that you are just going to be so sure has to be symbolic and metaphorical, that it can't mean what it seems to say. This can't be real. But trust me when I say that it is indeed literal and certifiably real. It's just a matter of time before it happens. Look at verses 6 through 9 in the conditions of the kingdom. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fattened cattle together and a little boy will lead them. And the cow and the bear will graze together and their young shall lie down. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play around the hole of the cobra and around the den of the viper. A weaned child will stretch out his hand, but they will not do evil and they will not do harm in all of my holy mountain, for the world will be filled with the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. There it is. Lions and tigers and bears and little kids, playing with snakes. And I know what you're thinking. There's no way that's true. There's no way that's real. There has to be, just has to be, a deeper, more profound, deeper spiritual meaning beneath the clear meaning of the text, to which I reply, does it? Does it have to be symbolic? Does it have to be metaphorical of something else? other than what the text describes, because I'll just tell you we have every reason, biblically, theologically, and hermeneutically, to take this absolutely literally. (laughs) Because you remember, don't you, the flood in Genesis 9... God promised that there one day there would, be, there would soon be hostility and danger between the people and the animals. Do you remember that? Hostility and danger between the people and the animals. And we take that absolutely literal because it's real and we should. It's true. It's historical. It happened and we live that. Lions are in cages in the zoo for a reason. And yet here in Isaiah 11 is the solution to the problem. Here in the text, get this now, is a return to the pre-fall, pristine, paradise-like conditions to what the world was like before the virus of sin entered into the world. Because that's the question. What was the world like before sin? And what will it be like when Messiah comes again? And the answer is exactly one and the same. Look at verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard and the young goat will lie down together, and the calf and the young lion and the fattened cattle together, and a little boy will lead them. What on earth are we seeing? Well, it is the earth, and it is the future. And what this is, is the power of the king so pervasive on the planet that his very presence reverses and alters the effects of sin and sin's power on the earth. Wolves and lambs will lay down in the same field. Leopards and baby calves will lay down in the same barn. Well, that's funny because wolves eat lambs. Leopards kill baby cows. And yet, and yet, when the root branch of Jesse comes. Those days will be over. In the kingdom, the predator-prey distinction will no longer exist. All the savagery that has existed between the animals since the fall will be over in the presence of the king. Zoos with bars and cages will no longer be in business in the kingdom. There will be animals, but there will be no zoos. Look at the end of verse 6: little kids, instead of puppies and kittens, will play with cows and lions. And the text says that they will lead those animals, which, which harkens back, which echoes back to the original creation mandate to rule and subjugate the earth. And the reason why this will happen is because the king's very presence on the earth overturns the curse and restores the planet to the harmony of Eden. I know it sounds crazy. It's not crazy. This is perfectly logical and theological. In fact, Isaiah 51 and Ezekiel 36 say that very thing, that God explicitly in the text, that God will make the earth again like the Garden of Eden, that paradise lost will be regained, that the first Adam ruined the planet with sin, and the second Adam will restore the planet and break the spell of sin. Look at verse 7. Cows and bears will graze in the same field, Their young will lie down together. Lions will be tame. And instead of eating the ox, we'll eat straw like the ox. I'm not saying that's scientifically possible. I'm just saying that is historically inevitable. Reminds me when I was a kid. I watched the National Geographic TV show. I don't know if that's a thing anymore. But I remember watching these just being horrified because they would show these gruesome, slow-motion, high-def videos of animal brutality, of of gazelles and antelopes being ripped and torn apart by lions, blood everywhere, and lifeless animal carcasses lying on the ground. And yet, when the great high king comes to claim his throne, there will be no more movies made by National Geographic. be over. Why? Because his kingdom is not just a spiritual kingdom. It is an everything kingdom. It is comprehensive and holistic with every aspect of creation, get this now, refurbished and repaired and renewed with the curse of sin reversed. We've only, and I know this sounds crazy, but it's only because we've only known a fallen world ruined by sin. That's all we've known. And yet it will not always be that way. And frankly, I'll just level with you. Many believers in the church today are so stuck in this gloomy vision of the afterlife where a bunch of Casper-friendly ghosts and disembodied souls float around in some celestial utopia that visions of the future like this simply become unintelligible. We have misunderstood the song, This World Is Not My Home half-true, half-true. This world will be your home. It will be your home, just not in the state in which it currently exists. Because when the Son of Man arrives to claim his throne and he will arrive, he will reverse the curse and break the spell and make all things be the way they ought to be. Chickens and foxes, Cats and coyotes. I'm just going to name animals for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> Even snakes and children will live in perfect harmony on the earth. Look at verse 8. The nursing child, the nursing child will play around the hole of the cobra. And around the den of the viper, a weaned child will stretch out his hand. I mean, you can tell, don't you? You can tell you're just going to have to make room in your theology for zoology because in the kingdom babies will play with snakes and cobras and stick their little hands in a viper's nest and they won't be harmed why how is that possible this sounds like science fiction it's not it's biblical prediction. This is going to happen in verse 9. Look at verse 9. It gives the reason, the answer for how this is even possible. Look at the text. It says, they, speaking of the animals, they will not do evil and they will not do harm in all of my holy mountain. Why? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. I mean, you could totally tell, can't you? The peace in the animal kingdom is just a sample of what the entire world will be like. Because here Yahweh says that the whole earth, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of him which has echoes to Genesis 1 in the original creation mandate. The, the reason he gives why vipers are nice and lions don't bite is precisely because the knowledge of Yahweh in and through his king will flow down from the mountain of Zion, as it were, and fill all the earth like the waters cover the sea. What does that mean? It means it will be pervasive the curse reversing power and presence of yahweh through his king will pervade every aspect of creation and if that sounds a little bit like regeneration that's exactly what it is that's exactly what christ calls it in matthew 19:28 he calls it the great regeneration when the son of man sits on his throne peter called it the restoration of all things acts 3:21 and it is precisely what Paul is describing in Romans 8, 19 through 21, when he says that the creation eagerly awaits the redemption of this, the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, of course, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Here it is, because even the creation itself. Will be set free from its slavery to corruption, to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is he saying? Where did Paul get the theology of a renewed creation, a curse free creation, the always winter, never Christmas scourge of sin finally lifted from the cosmos? Who put that idea in his head? The prophets. Prophets filled his brain with glorious visions of the earth reclaimed with the great high king at the center of it all. And you might remember, we actually sing this every single December. We just didn't know that it was inspired by the prophets. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat their sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And yet having said that, It is still winter here, isn't it? In the mysterious providence of God, He has not yet sent His Son to break the curse, has He? Sins and sorrows still grow. Thorns still infest the ground. We're still waiting for the day when creation is set free from its slavery to corruption. Our patience grows thin in a fallen world filled with chaos and fear and misery and despair and and destruction and lies, does it not? And in a world like that, we sometimes wonder, is there anything good gained in God waiting one more moment to intervene? Does that really help us? Is it really helpful for us to wait? And apparently it is. Apparently it is. Because you understand the greater good that is gained in waiting to bring the kingdom, here it is. Is mission clarity. Mission clarity is the good gained in Christ not coming today. What I mean is, the destination of the kingdom clarifies and intensifies the mission of the church. What I'm saying is the global kingdom at the end of the age tells us that we are to spend our lives getting as many people as possible into that kingdom. Do you see? See, God not only ordains the end of his plan, but the means to that end. And you understand, we are the means. The people who will be there in the kingdom will be there through the witness of the church. Through you. Through you. They're not going to get there on their own, are they? They get there through means, through preaching, through prayer, through planting churches, all the while suffering persecution. And here's the thing. The whole point about prophecy, the whole point of prophecy is to show us that we have nothing to lose in giving our lives For that mission. Do you see? There's nothing to lose here. There's nothing to fear here. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And. The subcutaneous point that I'm making is, is that this eternal worship, service, perpetual sing-along in the sky where we stand around in togas and a harp has not helped the church. It has not. It has not provided the church with a kind of robust, compelling gospel-proclaiming, martyr-making courage required to fulfill the global cause of Jesus Christ. To put it another way, sloppy eschatology has led to limp missiology. This, however, is compelling. This is beautiful. This is powerful. We have the solution to the current train wreck of the world. Do we not? We know how it's going to end. We personally know the curse reversing, serpent crushing, sin bearing, hell defeating, grave robbing, savior from the line of David. You know him. We have the solution. And so if in your gospel proclamation you stop at mere forgiveness of personal sins, you have given a message that is woefully incomplete. The whole gospel includes a kingdom in which all things will be right when Jesus comes in sight. The question is, the question is who needs to hear the gospel of the kingdom from you? Who is it? Who needs to hear the gospel of a serpent-crushing, kingdom-establishing redeemer? Who needs to hear that from your mouth? Because if the last three years prove anything, if the last three years prove anything, is is that it is people are terrified and panicked and confused, and they are precisely because they don't have a king. Which brings us to the third riveting glimpse of the kingdom, number three. Third riveting glimpse, number three, the completed promises in the kingdom. The completed promises in the kingdom. And I know you know this, but to make any sense out of the Bible at all, you have to know that it is not a random compilation of miscellaneous tales, but it is, in fact, a drama, isn't it? It's a plot with a plan. A plan with a plot. It's a sacred script. It's a theological play that reveals what God is doing in the world, in and through His Son. And the thing about that plot of redemption unfolding in the Bible is that it consists of promises. And they're called covenants. God has made covenants and promises to His people. And in a sense, this is true, the entire Bible is about God making good on those promises. Let me rephrase that. God has made covenants and promises to the people of Israel. And in a sense, the entire Bible is about God making good on his promises to them. And the thing about those promises to Israel is that in Isaiah's day and in ours, none of those promises were fully fulfilled. They're not today. Because to Israel, he promised a land, a kingdom. A king ruling from that kingdom, new regenerated, circumcised hearts that love and serve Yahweh, and a place of prominence in the earth as the blessing, who, the, the nation who brings blessings to the nations. And none of that was true in Isaiah's day, nor in ours, because they blew it with their sin and rebellion. They would be and currently are in widespread sin and unbelief. They hate and reject their own Messiah. They are scattered all over the planet, not in their own land. And speaking of their land, they have about half, less than half of all the land promised to the sons of Abraham. And in Isaiah's own day, Israel was split and severed in two, in two warring, factious kingdoms that hated each other. And so needless to say, it does not look Good, and the reason why I rehearse this to you is because A, fulfilling these promises looks impossible. B, if God doesn't fulfill these promises, he is a liar. And C, the future fulfillment of every single one of those promises is found, oh, I don't know, right here in Isaiah chapter 11. Look at this notice. Notice in verse 10. It begins with the root of Jesse, the branch of Jesse. Isaiah returns to him, the long-awaited king from David's line. He will have returned. He will reign from Jerusalem. The curse will be lifted, spell broken, all of the earth filled with the knowledge of Yahweh. And Isaiah says, verse 10, in that day, stop there. There it is again, the code, the code for prophecy, the code for this is going to happen in the future. In that day, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, who stands as a signal for the peoples. He says, the nations will seek or inquire of him, and his resting place will be glorious. Isn't that interesting? The root of Jesse, when he returns, he will be a signal for the peoples. Peoples meaning nations, tribes, tongues, ethno-linguistic people groups, and they will look to the root of Jesse collectively. The planet as a whole will look to the root of Jesse as a signal, or better, a banner to whom to rally to lead them and protect them and satisfy the deepest longings of their souls, widespread belief and allegiance in Christ. This is exactly what Genesis 49 predicted ages ago, that someone would come from the line of Judah, from the tribe of Judah, and all the nations of the earth would obey him. That's what this is. And Isaiah says that his resting place will be glorious. That, that means the palace and the realm from which he reigns. And literally, Isaiah says glory. His resting place, the Hebrew just says glory. His resting place will be glory. Meaning his glory will radiate from his palace and his throne. The glory of God will shine in human, kingly, royal glory as he reigns upon throne. John said at the the incarnation, remember that? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld what? His glory. And here at the word who is flesh, we will see him still showing his glory. And I want you to back up and just think about this for a second. Verse 10, and, and really the whole prophecy as a whole, perfectly explains does it not why as christians we do what we do this is how prophet this is my prophecy is so helpful this perfectly explains why we do what we do why we go to church why we preach and read the scriptures why we pray, why we obey and submit to Christ, why men be men and women be women, why dads and husbands lead, why we pursue holiness, why we avoid slander and gossip, why we love and forgive and do redemptive relationships, why we count all things as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Why do we do those things? Not merely to feel better or to be good people, but to give the world, a picture of what the whole world will be like when Jesus Christ returns to rule the world. Do you see? And that means that kingdom living today begins, begins with trusting and treasuring Christ in and through his word. You understand this. The greatest service that we can render to the world is not to become like the world, but to be a sample of what the world will be like when Jesus Christ returns. And yet, that being said, it, it didn't look good. doesn't look good for the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 30 promised ages ago that the, the people of Israel would be scattered all over the planet, which is where they are right now, by the way. And yet, promises made, promises kept. Look at verses 11 and 12. In that day, there it is again, in that day the Lord will stretch out His hand a second Time, A second time to redeem the remnant of his people who will be left over from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. He, that is God, will lift up a banner for the nations and he will, note, gather the dispersed ones of Israel and the outcasts of Judah. He will gather from the four corners of the earth. I mean, you see it, don't you? I'm not the only one, am I? Who sees it? The second exodus. The second exodus to come in the future for the people of Israel, kind of like the first, but better than the first. A later, greater, global exodus coming at the end of the age that will put the first exodus out of Egypt to absolute shame. That's why Isaiah says the second time that for the second time in history Yahweh will rescue his people in a sovereign and supernatural way not just from Egypt but from Assyria and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Hamath. These are regions around the Middle East heck he's even going to snatch them from the islands of the sea look at verse 12 he, he will gather the dispersed ones of Israel and the outcast of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is, this is incredible. Do, do you see what this is? In Exodus, for the second time, this is everywhere in the prophets, Ezekiel 36, Yahweh says, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all of the lands and I will bring you into your own land. How will he do that Exactly. How is God going to do that? Kind of like he did at the first exodus. He will clear a path. Look at verses 15 and 16, still describing the exodus to come. And Yahweh will dedicate to destruction the tongue of the sea of Egypt. Do you see this? And he will wave over with his hand over the river with the scorching of his wind. Are you seeing this? And he will strike it into seven streams. And literally, he will cause them to tread in sandals, that is, on dry ground. And there will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left over from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day they came out of the land of Egypt. Exodus number two, coming in the future a global exodus. And you notice, you notice Yahweh will literally alter the landscape. He, he will perform stunning geographical transformations to create this exodus superhighway so that his people Israel can come back home. And you understand when that happens, when that second exodus happens, the covenant that God made with the people of Israel, the covenant he made with Abraham will be fulfilled. They will live in the land that God has promised. They will be restored to the role that he intended. He will keep every single kingdom promise he ever made to the people of Israel. And you see, the reason why this matters to you is not because you are Israel, because you're not. The reason why this matters to you is because of the character of God himself. I mean, let's just level with one another. If God could make sovereign, unconditional promises to Israel, choose them unconditionally, and yet fail to keep his promises to them, we have zero guarantee that he will keep his promises to us. But if God, or should I say, when God intervenes and performs a second exodus, a global exodus, and brings his people home from the ends of the earth, then we know that our own election is secure, promises made, promises kept. We're almost done. Notice verse 13. God would heal the breach. He would sever the shattered kingdom of Israel in the north and Judah in the south and make them again one united kingdom. And then verse 14, if you can stomach it, and you need to stomach it, Just as there will be a second exodus, there will also be a second conquest. In other words, just like Israel drove out the wicked foreign nations who did not belong there under the rule of Joshua, so Israel will do the same under the rule of Jesus. Can you handle that? All the hostile nations living in Israel who do not belong there will be conquered and plundered and driven from the land when Christ arrives and every single kingdom promise God ever made to his people will be fulfilled. And why does this matter? Why does prophecy matter, which is a little bit like asking, why does the human race need oxygen to survive? The reason why this matters is because to be sane and to not lose our minds in a world of chaos and fear, we have to practice what I call kingdom reflexivity. We have to have kingdom reflexivity. What I mean is, every time we hear something scary and terrifying and dangerous and horrible in the world, we must have a theological reflex in our souls. What I mean is, with every tragic and terrible event that's tempted to to scare us and to cause us to panic and fear, we must reflex and remember the kingdom. We must transpose the terrors of today. With the triumphs of tomorrow. We must juxtapose the horrors of today with the happiness of the future. Do you see? We need to turn off the news and close down the article, and we need to open our Bibles and behold the splendor of a kingdom when paradise lost will be regained. I'll put it this way. The prophets must become our friends, not our awkward cousins. We must become fluent in the language of the apocalyptic. We must learn to dine on the fine cuisine of eternity in the age to come because the more you understand God's plan for the ages, the more you will be able to withstand the onslaught of the world. Finally, and super fast, you don't believe me, but you must Fourth glimpse of the kingdom. Number four, the captivated praise in the kingdom. The captivated praise of the kingdom. When I said that the age to come will not be some perpetual sing along in the sky with togas and a harp, I didn't mean there wouldn't be any music. I didn't mean there wouldn't be any worship. I didn't mean there wouldn't be any singing. Because a song to sing when the king arrives is exactly what Isaiah gives us in chapter 12. It's only six verses, but yet it's inseparably connected with chapter 11. It's a celebration, the celebration of what will happen when the root of Jesse comes to reign. Look at the text. We must hear this. Luke read it at the beginning. We close with this. Isaiah says, and you will say in that day, I will praise you, O Yahweh, for you are angry with me. Your anger turned and you had compassion on me. Behold, O God of my salvation, I will trust and I will not be in terror. Do you say that? You must. For Yahweh is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. You will draw water with joy from the springs of salvation and you, Israel, will say in that day, Praise Yahweh. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Remember that exalted is his name. Sing to Yahweh for he has done majestic things. Let this be known in all of the earth. Lift up your voice. Shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. In your midst. With you. Among you. In your midst. It's incredible. It's incredible. Verses 1 through 3. Israel's exhilaration with Yahweh. Verses 4 through 6, Israel leading the world in the worship of Yahweh. That's, that's what it is. They will fulfill the plan, the role that God had given to them. They will lead the nations in the worship of, and, and treasuring of Yahweh when the king comes to reign. Notice verse 1. It's our biography too. They will praise and prize him for his sovereign grace. He had been angry with them, and yet of sheer staggering mercy uninitiated by them. Yahweh's angle will return and he will have compassion. They will trust and not be afraid. Verse 3, they and we, Israel and us together, end in unison, will draw waters from the springs of salvation with joy. Verses 4 and 5, Israel will lead the world in worship and in that day they will say to the nations, praise Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, Remember that exalted is his name. Sing to Yahweh, for he has done majestic things. Let this be known in all of the earth. And last, verse 6, we and they will sing aloud and shout for joy and lift our verse and shake the earth because the Holy One will rule the world from Zion. And in that day, the planet will be renewed. Paradise will will be restored. Israel will be returned. The nations will be redeemed. And last of all, best of all, greatest of all, most beautiful of all, the great high king of David will reign on the throne and we will say together in unity and harmony and in unison together, worthy is the Lamb. O Branch of Jesse, we are grateful for this. And we understand, O Lord, that prophecy, for it to have its full effect in our lives, O Lord, must not remain on a helpful chart somewhere, but it must be embedded in our souls. We must understand the trajectory of history and where this thing is going. And where it's going is with your triumphant return. And not just that, but a kingdom to follow. And it will be, and you will be, everything we have been wanting forever. Thank you for rescuing us. Had you not done that, had you not awakened our our, our souls and opened our eyes, we would never have believed and been saved. And we're so grateful for your gracious, sovereign intervention. Empower us now, O Lord. Out there is a world that does not want us to speak. Out there is a world that has no interest in encouraging us. Out there is a world that has zero desire to to edify us. And out there, O Lord, is our field, our mission field, as it were, empower us, strengthen us, give us boldness, give us courage to declare the branch of Jesse and the restoration of all things. And it's in your mighty name we pray.